This week on Making Contact. If you don't meet that you look like an Indian, act like an Indian, other people discriminate against you because you are an Indian, if you don't meet that vision, you don't get federal recognition. Indigenous communities are fighting for, and winning, long-awaited legal and political recognition from international governmental bodies, including the United Nations. At times, this recognition leads to special laws and status for First Nations people. But some say this new status comes at a cost, the loss of true self-determination for their communities. On this edition, we hear from lawyers and scholars who spoke at Transformative Justice in Communities of Color, an event held at the University of California at Berkeley in September 2008. I'm Puck Lowe, your host this week on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Rebecca Sotzi is professor of law at Arizona State University. She speaks about what she calls the paradox of colonialism for Native people. Can a legal system imposed by a colonizing government defend the rights of dispossessed peoples? How can contemporary movements for indigenous sovereignty imagine social healing for the future? And what does the law have to do with how we see history and ourselves? So I start my paper with what I call the paradox of colonialism for native people. And that is, what's the story that we tell? And then what's the story that we tell now in an era of self-determination, UN declaration, um, says, hey, indigenous peoples have a right to self-determination. They're equal to other peoples. We're telling ourselves that story about self-determination. It's really powerful. Um, but we keep telling this other story, too. And so what is that story? Um, there was a, a recent kind of media furor. I don't know how much it permeated outside of Indian country. Uh, but in Indian country today, um, Chuck Trimble, who's an Oglala Lakota leader, he's a, he's a commercial businessman now, but he was a political leader for the National Congress of American Indians in the 1970s. And he wrote this column basically saying to Indian people, you know, you need to let go of the chains of victimhood. That was the title. You, did, you just need to let go of that. Um, and he said, you know, when I was director of NCAI in the 1970s, I was over there in Congress pushing for legislation you know, for Indian people, economic development, health, education. And he said, my testimony always started off with this litany of woes. You know, what's happening in Indian country? Highest infant mortality, lowest life expectancy, highest unemployment, lowest per capita income, on and on and on and on. And he said, well, I did that um, partly to say, you guys, your federal policies have been responsible for this dysfunction in our communities. But he said, I also did it honestly to elicit pity or sympathy or guilt, all of which was the motivation I needed to get that legislation through. And he said, you know, today it's 30 years later, and he said, I think that we treasure our victimhood. So in some sense, it works for us, but then we have to ask ourselves, what is victimhood doing to us? What's the cost of that story? And I think that it was hard for people to hear that because we're so used to that story. And in fact, that's what's taught. Like you go to the tribal colleges, they're all about empowerment. Learn your history, learn about historic injustice, learn that all of that was false. Everything that was said to you about savage, uncivilized, no laws, blah, blah, that was false. That was them that did that. Look at us now. And 
So nobody's saying that that's not true in a sense, but what's the impact of telling that story generation after generation after generation? And so now, what happens in the current day, and, and Sam Deloria, who's a colleague of mine who runs the um, American Indian uh, Graduate Center in New Mexico and funds higher education, he said he was just really shocked by his sort of tour of you know, native colleges and programs because he saw that that was a fundamental part of American Indian studies and empowerment was the historic trauma story, the victim story. And he said, how can you empower young people if what you're telling them is another version of that victim story that they heard all their lives um, on the reservation? So how does that translate into legal consciousness? Let me talk a little bit about that um, and, and suggest to you that within federal Indian law, at least, for Native people, that's a really important site to look at how that story has uh, manifested. And the story that has manifested is, is structural and it's hierarchical, right? Anybody remember the Marshall Trilogy? If you took property law, Johnson v. McIntosh sets up that hierarchy of property rights, right? At, at the moment of discovery and settlement, the European sovereigns get the full title to the lands. They only have their little bitty settlement, but they get the full title to the lands. Native people only have the right of occupancy, the right to basically subsist there until the European sovereign extinguishes their title, and they are completely divested of the right to enter into foreign relations with other multiple sovereigns at the moment of discovery. Why is that so? Professor Rob Williams at U of A has written about that in his book. Um, and, and it basically is because the, this mythology that American Indian people had no legal system that had to be taken into effect, as would be the case if a civilized nation conquered another civilized nation. You have to leave their legal system in place, and then the transition is, is made. And Marshall said, well, they were too savage. They were too uncivilized. We couldn't do that. They were actually lawless and therefore subject to discovery, which is basically applicable to vacant lands, right? The next two sets of cases, the Cherokee cases, basically established that idea of a domestic dependent nation. So this is the hierarchy of sovereignty. By virtue of discovery, the European sovereign takes over as the superior sovereign. And Indian nations, because they are totally within the territory of the United States, become these domestic dependent entities. Marshall said they were in a state of pupillage. They were wards. The federal government was a guardian. They had no independent standing to sue in their own right in the United States Supreme Court for Georgia's violation of the federal treaties. Now that notion, domestic dependent nation, had a, a, a sense of, of uh, paternalistic benevolence. Uh, we have to protect you, right? In the 19th century, that turned into federal power, plenary power, extra constitutional. Because of our duty to protect you, we get the power to do what? We can remove you from your territories. We can confiscate your treaty-guaranteed lands through allotment. We can civilize you. We can send Christian missionaries out as federally paid Indian agents. No establishment clause problem, because you guys are wards. Um, we can outlaw your religions. We can outlaw your healing practices. 
We can shut down your native governments and establish basically our own courts, our own Indian police, our system, answers to the agent. All of that was done as, as, by virtue of federal power. Again, that wardship. Okay, so fast forward, right? Where are we right now? And Sam Deloria would actually say, we're, we actually are in almost the same place. Because the only reason the United States tolerates the separate nation status of Indian nations is three <coughs> things. They're poor, they're culturally distinctive, and they have this special legal relationship, once termed guardian ward, now termed the federal trust responsibility. But it's really the same thing. But we fight for that. We fight for that because that status is what enables Indian nations to have some level of self-governance within their reservation communities, to have tribal courts, to engage in gaming, economic development, um, mineral resource agreements. So it's that special status that everybody clings onto. But that story is what justifies it. Okay, so what happens after that? We are in an era of self-determination. What does that mean? In terms of the victim story, and this is what Trimble said in his, his article, he says, well, sorry, you can't be a victim and a sovereign. If you want to be a sovereign, that presumes some level of superiority as a government. And you can't drag yourself down to inferiority by being a victim and still claim sovereignty. And so he put it right out there. Um, and I think that that is what, within Native communities, we have to think about. Now, how does that manifest with other communities of color that we interact with? And here I want to say that the lesson to Native people has been, if you are not poor, culturally distinctive as Indian people, the larger society is not going to tolerate you. And so in terms of the, the federal government's policy of termination in the 1950s and 60s, it was targeted at the successful tribes who used their resources and had a standard of economic living. They were, the trust responsibility was terminated. They were no longer legally Indians. Same thing for cultural distinctiveness. Those groups petitioning for federal recognition, if you don't meet the you look like an Indian, act like an Indian, other people discriminate against you because you are an Indian, if you don't meet that vision, you don't get federal recognition. So marginalize, that's the definition of what's an Indian. Gaming, uh-oh, what about the gaming tribes? Some of them are doing pretty well. They're actually even players in the politics. And that's breaking down in really, really nasty ways. Number one, it balkanizes the native communities. So the large land-based treaty tribes that don't have a lot of money broke off from the small California gaming tribes in, at National Congress of American Indians said, our issues aren't your issues. We're still poor. We still have treaty rights. We have a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. We're not in this economic entrepreneurship game. Um, the other thing that it does, obviously, is to, to make Indian people very reluctant to have a shared agenda with other minority groups. So recently, there was an effort by ASU to glom together all of the distinctive programs um, designed for different groups into one big ethnic studies. And of course, that was a problem for everybody, right? Because everybody's, you know, situation was getting diluted and mushed into one thing that they could deal with. 
but, but the native people, I mean, basically they said, hey, you do whatever you want over there. Our issues are different. Our issues are sovereignty. Let's get the tribal leaders in here to tell you guys the truth. And so they left us alone. Indian studies, that's a standalone, because our issues are different. They're sovereignty. Are they really different? OK. Um, I think that that is why it behooves us to think about what our vision is now, given those contemporary realities, given the story that we've been telling, um, what's our responsibility into the future? And I want to suggest to you two things. First of all, how we go into the debate, what's our starting place? And I think that the typical starting place within all of the Western theories that we were trained and educated to believe is that social change is generated through human agency, material concerns, poverty, imprisonment, et cetera, lead to a spiritual awakening. We take that power and we engage in healing and we try all of these you know, mechanisms to achieve some level of repair in a symbolic sense, in a material sense. All of that, right? That's the way that we've been approaching those issues. Within a lot of native epistemologies, they would say that the spiritual realm governs the material. There is no change unless it starts with spirit. It starts with spirit first, and then the change happens. And that's how the traditional healing practitioners work. They say a level of prayers that, that envision you healed, you moving through these stages until you end up to be where you want to be, fully whole and fully healed. And that's how it, the process starts. So what would that entail for us? I think, first of all, it entails that, that corrective view of the past, right? We weren't lawless. We had sophisticated legal systems, legal norms, healing systems. There was a lot of powerful knowledge, and it still endures. Claiming that, discovery, that's mythology. <laughs> Domestic dependent nation, that's a fiction. It can help us out right now in terms of the status thing, but it's really a fiction. There's no truth in that. Um, second thing, in terms of our ability to deal with the future, one very, very alarming thing. I just got back from this conference on climate change. Mm -hmm. Climate economics, da, 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 da. OK. So they were all sitting around the table saying, well, look, you know, there are going to be costs with climate change. And one of the costs is going to be the relocation of communities. Let's think about the Inuit people in Alaska. They're in <laughs> village organizations. Their villages are getting flooded out with the melting of the ice. We're going to have to relocate those people. There's a list of them, right? Is it more expensive to relocate them as villages or as individuals? Hmm. Turns out, more expensive to relocate them as villages. Now, nothing's been decided, OK? But one thing that was scary that happened is that another professor raised his hand and said, well, I'll see why we have to get into this cost discussion now. It seems to me like a form of reparations. And nothing's happened to them. They could get jobs in the city. They could be successful just like everybody else. All we have to do is empower them materially, economically. We don't have to sustain them in their villages and in their subsistence life ways. If that isn't feasible for this generation, then they're just going to have to get over that. They're going to have to let that go. That's the future. And they're already talking about the reparations. Do we owe it to them? Well, well, what if? 
you know, and that's what I mean. See, the past, the present, the future, it, they understand it differently than we do. But it's incumbent on us to actually say what is true. And the place I'm going to end with my one minute <laughs> is that we have to make a choice. We have to make a conscious choice about who it is that we are and who it is that we're going to be. Thank you. That was Rebecca Sotzi, professor of law at Arizona State University. She spoke at the Transformative Justice and Communities of Color convening, held at UC Berkeley in September 2008. Moana Jackson is a New Zealand Maori lawyer and university professor. He has worked extensively on international indigenous issues, drafting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and serving as a judge for the International Tribunal of Indigenous Rights. We'll hear excerpts from a speech entitled, Culture, Language, and Power. We lived on the banks of a river, and for our people too, the river is the lifeblood of Mother Earth. And in the middle of our river stood a rock, which was shaped like a, a chimney, and we called it Te Kohatu o Te Atariya, or the rock of Te Atariya. And it had a story, because it had a spirit. And when I was young, my grandfather took me to the rock and told me how it's got, it, got its name, Te Kohatu o Te Atariya. That once there was a handsome young man called Te Atariya, who fell in love with a beautiful young woman called Hineaka Teoke. But her family didn't want him, her to have anything to do with him. They didn't think he was good enough for her. So broken-hearted at night, he would wade across the river, he would climb up onto the rock, and he composed songs and he would sing to her. And his voice carried across the land, and eventually her family relented, they married, they had many children, and many generations later, came us. My grandfather took my hand and he put it on the rock and said, touch this because this is who you are. When I was about 10 years old, the local government in the area decided that it needed to do some flood control work on the river. They didn't talk to our people because if they had, we would have told them that the river's actually a braided river, that is, it has a wide, rocky, shingle base. And so when water comes down in a flood from the mountains, it just spreads across the bed and doesn't flood. But they didn't talk to us, and the first we knew of what was happening was one morning we were having breakfast, we heard some loud explosions, we ran down to the river, to find that our rock had been literally blown away. My, my grandfather was 83, and I can remember him stumbling into the river and there were tears running down his old cheeks, and he was pushing aside the workers trying to gather up the shattered remains of our river, of our rock. And I've never forgotten that day because when my family came along and when my grandchildren came along, I had nowhere to take them to say, touch this because this is who you are. 
and the culture that that act represents is still in place because the ability to destroy that rock and all that it represented was an act of power. It was an exercise of power, state power, dismissive of our place. It was also an act of language, the second thread in my story, because it was justified in the language of law. There is a statute at home called the Public Works Act, which allowed for such things to be done. And the act is framed in all the usual reasoned sounding rhetoric of law. And to understand that language is to understand, I think, how the culture of colonization itself works and the difficulty of the task in actually challenging, critiquing, and eventually transforming that culture. That was Moana Jackson, director of the Maori Legal Service in New Zealand. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. You can also download programs or get our podcast at radioproject.org. We now return to a talk given by Maori lawyer and university professor Moana Jackson, speaking at Transformative Justice in Communities of Color, a convening at UC Berkeley in September 2008. The major difficulty I have with the colonizer's law as it still functions is that certainly at home it is continually redefining our own perceptions of our rights. It is constantly limiting and setting itself up as the expert on who we are, what our place is and what our future should be. And in, in that process, it solidifies the, the, the culture of colonization and makes it harder to work towards the, the, the transformation, the, the decolonization, if you like, that, it, that is necessary. Many of our people see it as a necessary tool at this point in time but the danger, as I said, is that while that tool is being used, the space for our law to flourish and grow is constantly being restricted. And it often works in a really insidious way. Um, if I can just take a moment to give an example of the United Nations Draft Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which has been hailed by many Indigenous Peoples as a wonderful breakthrough. And in many ways, it is. I, I was involved along with many other people from home in the drafting of the declaration for over 10 years and we fought constantly with 
the New Zealand government, which was consistently opposed to the declaration. And when it was finally voted upon in the General Assembly, as you may know, only four countries voted against it. And they were New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the United States. And, but for quite different reasons, I actually found myself also opposing the final draft. Because not many people, I think, have picked up what is really a most insidious change in, in the Declaration. I'm sure you're all aware that in many of the fundamental human rights conventions, one of the basic rights acknowledged is the right of self-determination. And so the conventions talk about all peoples have a right of self-determination. And when we began drafting the Declaration in the late 1980s, we decided that if the Declaration was to be a, a statement of minimum human rights standards, then we would just transfer that right of self-determination into the Declaration and say all Indigenous peoples have a right of self-determination. The difficulty we had in that process with the New Zealand, Amer United States, Ca Canada and Australian governments was that they would not acknowledge the right of self-determination. The final draft of the Declaration, which was accepted by the great majority of states in the United Nations General Assembly, had actually changed the definition of self-determination with one little word and what I, I call an act of legal magic. Because whereas in the conventions it says all peoples have a right of self-determination, in the declaration it says indigenous peoples have a right to self-determination. And that little transposition of words actually alters the very meaning of the right. Because if you have a right of something, then it is inherent in your humanity. It is part of your humanity and therefore a human right. If you have a right to something, it is an aspiration to which you may one day be allowed and that was the law, as it is called, at work. And so it has granted indigenous peoples not a human right, but like, say, the rights in the Marshall cases here in the United States, rights available to those who are somehow less than human. And as long as that law continues to behave in that dishonest, deceitful way, while proclaiming justice for all, then it continually impinges upon and limits the rights which indigenous peoples have traditionally defined in terms of our relationships as fully sentient human beings 
with Mother Earth, with the environment and so on. And it's that sort of danger that I see in putting too much continued faith in that law. I, I, I don't deny that many of our people at home will certainly continue to see it as a tool, but I think we have to be very aware of the dangers it can cause as well. That was Moana Jackson, New Zealand Maori lawyer and university professor. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to Dan Turner, Ron Rucker, and the Monday Morning Breakfast crew. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736, or you can get our podcast at radioproject.org. Lisa Rudman is our Executive Director, Khan Pham, Associate Director, Tina Rubio, Executive Producer, Andrew Stelzer, Producer, Elena Botkin-Levy, Production Coordinator, and I'm Puck Lowe. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.